Hello and welcome to episode 6 of AS for Architecture with me, Ambrose Gillick. I'm talking today with Lee Ivett, an architect and educator about his work as director of Baxendale, a small practice based in Glasgow, Scotland, but which works across the UK and Europe on spatial, built and programmatic interventions which address issues of cultural, social and urban marginalisation. So, so for me, then it was a, like a question of what can you do with fifty pound, two hundred pound, a thousand pounds? What can you do right now, um, and how can you do that in a way that is still aspirational in some sense? So even if you're just building stuff out of rubbish or reusing things, that there's always something that's aspirational about what you're doing. You know, in terms of maybe not in terms of its like craft or like I say, its material quality. Um, but it's suggestive of something more. It's always suggestive of something more. So it can exist on its own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ideal scenario is it starts to create some kind of momentum, some kind of suggestion, something that does lead to more serious, permanent and long-term change, but that that change is more organic and emergent mm. than than a solution that is visualized as a grand plan, a grand gesture, and then imposed. A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome again. Um, I'm speaking with Lee Ivett of Baxendale and uh, Lee, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, thank you, Ambrose. My name is Lee Ivett and uh, I am a founder of my own practice called Baxendale and I'm also the course leader in undergraduate architecture at the Grenfell Baines Institute of Architecture which is based in my hometown of Preston and I uh, increasingly situate my own work more as research rather than uh, business because it doesn't work, it doesn't work <laughs> as Ambrose knows um, and so everything I make is usually um, trying to ask and answer questions of the situation in which it's being made, but also broader questions about the role of making and the act of making as a tool for research and inquiry as well. So, so there's a couple of things. There's this, well, there's the big issue is making community is community How do yeah you- i mean i suppose that's the thing I, I, I didn't mention there is that the the context within which i've worked predominantly in in the, in the kind of last 14 15 years have been in contexts of um some form of marginalization so that that has usually took its form as, as being in um communities um considered to be socially and economically deprived um, housing estates, peripheral kind of rural town village situations. So that idea of making, I suppose, originally was seen by me as a potential tool for engagement. It's kind of way of finding out about a place, but also collaborating with a place in some form or another, and also creating acts of making that were so simple that people could engage with them, you know, without having to be taught 
a huge amount of um, skills or have or having to bring a huge amount of knowledge um, to, to the table. So I think the starting point was probably an analysis of certain areas and situations that clearly needed something and the way in which that something was being identified was through quite arduous, tortuous community consultation and engagement exercises. When the immediate needs seemed so obvious, as, as, as you know, it, it was clear that things could or needed or should be done immediately and that the evidence for that was actually experiential and visible. You know, you didn't necessarily need to go and ask a thousand people what don't you like and what do you like or what do you want and what don't you want to know that something was a little bit fucked you know and yeah. I suppose then for, for me I was interested in how immediate acts of making might even in the short term just be something that just made something a little little bit 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 better than it was or fixed something or improved something or at least pointed you know, that rather than filling in a form or filling in a questionnaire or playing a game with a con consultant, you kind of, you, su you, you suggested something through an act of making. You suggested something by, act through action, um, rather than just um, speculation or rather than just some kind of documented desire, I suppose. So there's, there's two, there's an, there's an implicit criticism of, of architectural practice in there there's one of the kind of participatory architecture which as you say you know a thousand questionnaires to find out what you could work out by simply driving around um, and looking and then there's there seems to me to be a, also a critique of i suppose larger scale architecture or uh, normal architectural practice you said sort of uh, implied that in a way that in these marginalized communities stuff is done without reference to the communities themselves like things get built practice isn't looking at these kind of places properly instead it just builds in these places yeah i mean I, i'm not even sure what i mean there's there's very interesting questions about you know the, the manner in which architectural practice is either just complacent or is complicit you know in kind of modes of conceiving and delivering architecture that actually doesn't really have anything to do with you know the, the the specific dynamics of of a situation as it exists in the here and here and now I mean I came into this kind of work or this kind of thinking as a result of choosing to do my part two at Strathclyde on the urban design course so rather than doing my part two through the advanced architectural design strand, I kind of signed up for urban design. And mainly because by that point, I'd become interested in why a lot of what gets built and designed by architects isn't actually very good. Mm -hmm. um, and I was also very interested in the spaces in between buildings. I was interested in the kind of way in which architecture is situated and why it's situated like that and what it chooses to acknowledge or or doesn't and I was interested in um ideas of poverty 
um, and disenfranchised. You know, it's like Glasgow. I mean, I'd, I'd, by that point, I'd spent enough time in Glasgow, and had come across instances of poverty that I'd never experienced. You know, I, I, I couldn't begin to believe that, mm. um, like twentieth century at the time, twentieth, twenty whatever century it was. Twenty first, twenty first, twenty first. Maybe like yeah, two thousand and one kind of. You know, is is I'm I'm kind of finding bits of Glasgow where you you yeah you, it's hard to conceive that what you know consider living in a developed Western society that actually we 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 have conditions uh, and environments that people are living in that that actually um, are potentially deeply unfair and unjust and unpleasant. So. Again, so I was interested in all those things. So I, I kind of chose to do urban design um, because the urban design course was also kind of situating itself within the north of Glasgow in areas, uh, social housing states, um, working with some lo- like housing associations, etc. And 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 part of that we started getting introduced to you know the, the master plans for these areas and. The more I looked at these master plans, you know, like the more I I, I didn't understand, I didn't kind of you you begin to realize that all that's happening is really it's a kind of um that really a load of people either don't like the way these places look and they don't like the way the people in them look mm-hmm. and they want to make it look better. <laughs> and then you realize that the reason actually they want to make it look better is so that other people might want to live there too and then you kind of think naively well that's not a bad thing you know it's like social diversity is a good thing and kind of mixed tenure is a good thing and all these things but then you realize actually what you know is really happening here is you're going to like knock these places down and build them again so that you know nicer more economically active palatable people will move in and pay more tax and uh set up coffee shop you know all the cliches around gentrification and, and things like that on one hand, but on the other hand, just um, that is basically a this repeat demolition model. You know, in like in Glasgow, there's places that have been knocked down and rebuilt now four times in a hundred years. So, so you so you start to realise as well that like where does architecture even sit into this? You know, like because if it's like architecture gets positioned as the problem a lot, and it also gets positioned as an answer a lot. Yeah. Yet we're now basically giving buildings 25 years and then we're just knocking them down and building new buildings, you know? So, um, so all, all of that made me believe that maybe um, smaller scale interventions and, you know, rather than having a wait, because that was the other thing with the master plan was like, you have this kind of like year long consultation process and then you have this year long design process and then you have this multi-year funding process. And then, you know, maybe five, six years after you've started thinking there's a problem, there is a plan. And then that plan, you know, and, and I'm like, well, why are we waiting? Why are we coming up with, you know, master plans for 2020 or 2030 and things like that when there's some stuff that just needs sorting out now? this weekend, next week, next month. Yeah. And actually maybe we can sort those things out and maybe we've, and so, so for me, then it was a, like a question of what can you do 
with 50 pounds, 200 pounds, a thousand pounds, what can you do right now? Um, and how can you do that in a way that is still aspirational in some sense? So even if you're just building stuff out of rubbish or reusing things, that there's always something that's aspirational about what you're doing, you know, in terms of maybe not in terms of it's like craft or like I say, or it's material quality. Um, but it's suggestive of something more. It's always suggestive of something more. So it can exist on its own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ideal scenario is it starts to create some kind of momentum, some kind of suggestion, something that does lead to more serious, permanent and long-term change, but that that change is more organic and emergent mm. than, than a solution that is visualized as a grand plan a grand gesture and then imposed um to to what extent does this does this small scale intervention thing derive from you as the architect um your perception your imagination and does it derive from say a community a community's kind of guidance you know so do you do you when you go you know if you go to a really impoverished marginalized place and you're like well i know what needs doing here um and i'm going to do it this weekend it's going to cost me 50 quid um i think i think that how how do you know you're how do you know you're kind of on the right track yeah i I think that i mean that falls into probably um different scales and layers and types of action um so you know, there's a lot, a lot of communities I've worked in. I've ended up working within those situations for years, mm. um, and I think that, like my immediate engagement with a place is always is, is always to spend time participating in that place, mm. rather than kind of asking that place to participate with me in some kind of mm. you know. And quite often you get forced into the usual tropes, depending on like who's commissioning something or where the funding's coming from. Mm. And these people like to see like some numbers um, in terms of how many people you engage with and blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. So quite often I was having to like do that just because that I I needed something to look like that had been done in that way. But at the same time, the the really useful stuff was more just situating myself in a place and experiencing it myself. And you, I suppose, my own, you know, the stuff that delighted me about the place or the stuff that frustrated me about the place or annoyed me about the place or made me scared or happy or to, to trust my own instincts on the one hand. But then through conversation with the people that I met through eating there or living there or buying things there or going to the shop there or attending group, you know, because it, a lot, a lot of the time these places are kind of deemed as having no, you know, you, you know as being kind of socially and culturally inactive mm. and actually the, 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 the generally not, there's usually actually loads of stuff going on. Yeah. It's just not like the stuff that. Chamber, or- people- chamber orchestras. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Chamber you know, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I was in Milton earlier. I was going to like bingo, you know, I was like going to bingo nights in 
little sheds, youth clubs, you know, at the, at the back of schools. And I was yeah. kind of meeting people who got together to, to drink in the woods because there was no pub, you know, and the, the, this wasn't, you know, the people who were getting together drinking in the woods were just middle-aged adults who didn't have a pub, you know, it, it, it wasn't, you know, it's some who, who had made bins and, and you know, it, it wasn't some, anti, it wasn't anti-social behaviour, you know yeah. what I mean? But it's like to another set of eyes, it might, it was actually very social behaviour actually, yeah, you yeah. know, <laughs> but, um, and and so so you you start to and and I think the, the for me the biggest clues for what a place needed started to be the actions that people were already taking themselves yeah either whether those actions were antisocial in the way that people call stuff antisocial or whether they were social or whether they were just people going about trying to pick up litter themselves or mm. kids painting goalposts on a wall, you know, and then all the, you know, the cliche of like the desire line, blah, blah, you know, the kind of worn path. And, but, you know, in, in a lot of places, people through their own behavior are suggesting what they need because they're trying to find their own agency or autonomy um, with it in spite of the conditions. So that, that, that always ended up for me being the biggest clues was like actually documenting what already happened because loads of stuff was already happening. And some of it was a bingo night over here. And some of it was, you know, like a coffee morning over there, or some of it was um, some people having a drink in the woods, or some of it was seeing that kids like to play football over there. And then you can start saying, all right, well, how do we as designers try and find a way of either legitimizing those acts or facilitating those acts? or providing for those acts um, in a way that helps them to establish themselves and progress and become something kind of greater or more meaningful or more permanent or more accepted than they currently are. So that was, <clears throat> for me, the, the work that was most successful probably followed that kind of mode of inquiry and action and, and response, you know, was that actually the stuff that needed to happen was probably maybe already happening but like you had to kind of look for it and quite often it was happening in spite you know of of the situation um so there's a kind of there's a kind of a requirement for a very a, a generosity in in inter, in interpreting and, and and viewing these spaces which is um which i think is a which is like which i think is a perennial problem for architects, but you you talked about this kind of master planning method, and I think you know this incredibly long timescales that these development plans and urban development plans kind of operate on, and and within that there might be something offered to lower income and more marginalised, deprived communities, and then you're talking so so it's a very long time frame that they operate over, and yet within that there seems to be precious little time actually spent communicating or trying to understand the social processes that make those communities um, function or not function or somewhere between the two most likely and then you're talking about the process that you're you, that, you, that you engage with or you enact which is also a very slow temporal process um, but it's at a totally different scale and I think that issue of time 
the 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 way that architects or architecture is I, I guess my question is is architecture not involved at the right points in these in this kind of in these broader urban development projects is it is it that you don't get architects at the beginning you don't get architects and the you, you get them sort of six months before the end when they want a design of something and then the architects brought in and all of the consultation all of the engagement all of the whatever it is has happened already and the architects just there to kind of draw a picture well, and yeah i mean i i think there's a bigger question about the passiveness um the way in which our architects have, for some reason, allowed themselves to be extremely passive in terms of, you know, the concept, you know, the, 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 what the potential motivation and conception or rationale for a piece of architecture even is. And also become pretty passive in terms of, you know, it's the management of its construction, but also the management of its budget. It's like we've kind of removed ourselves over the course of 25 years from all the stuff, or we've been pushed, I don't know, pushed out of or removed ourselves. I mean, it strikes me like like 20 years is true. It's it's really, it's been really quick, like since the millennium, basically. And, you know, you think now that, you know, there's, you know, the project manager emerged as a thing in the design team, and now there's design managers have emerged in the design design team on like bigger contracts and stuff. And and you know, there's obviously quantity surveyors have been around now for quite a long time. Um, and health and safety consult, you know, and conservation consultants, planning and consultants, yeah, yeah, planning consult, you know. So we so and, and so there's this question of we either have willingly or passively or whatever it is just kind of said we just like to draw nice pictures and um and you know kind of actually yeah maybe all that stuff's a bit hard and a bit boring and I don't know like what I don't know where where it comes from but the result of that is all that other stuff is the stuff that makes the pretty pictures happen right so you know if you if you've lost agency over the kind of mechanisms of delivery and now I think we've also lost agency over the kind of mechanisms of conception as well. You know, so if if you're not able to really, really, really inform um, a need, a desire, a rationale for the thing, then what you're left with is someone telling you what to create um, and then loads of other people telling you how to create it. Um, and you're trapped in the middle of those two situations, feeling really, really frustrated and pissed off um, because you're battling a load of other people's genders mm-hmm. and your voice is no longer like one of two or three voices in that conversation, you know, the client, the contractor and you as the lead, you know, you're now like, actually, now a kind of minor voice amongst a whole team of consultants, plus a client, plus a client's representative, plus a client, you know, like, and, and yeah, it's like our own ability to inform, not just the design of architecture, but its conception and the process of its delivery. 
is increasingly marginalised. Mm. And I think that problem also then comes back to your question, you know. So it's like, well, do we as architects even want to be, do, do we want to be involved in consulting and engaging with communities and testing things out and testing ideas and figuring out what the right thing to do is versus, you know, the thing that we're being told. Like, <clears throat> or I don't see there's loads of architects actually. I mean, there's increasingly more architects interested in that thing, but but they get but they're you know they're the architects who are getting written about in the AJ and the Reba Journal and in magazines and stuff. There's still loads and 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 loads of other practices who aren't those like ten practices who who get talked about in that way. So and 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 so there's still like the, for the majority of architects probably in the country you know th- their job is trying to deliver what a client is telling them to deliver for their agenda for their budget for their profit um and that and that is what you're you're actually and and, and and i mean if the architect gets marginalized in this process and you're talking about deprived communities they don't even get a they didn't even get a look in there's no space for them within that. Well, it's, you, know, you don't want to. You don't want to. You, if you've already got this multi-agency kind of task force dealing with this stuff, and then you introduce a community of people who are probably quite pissed off, often enough if they're very, very deprived and and overlooked, and also, you know, not led or there's no, you know, there's no very little kind of community organization. Then you, so you basically are saying you're going to introduce 25 really loud people into the room as well. Yeah, I, and I also, also think that a lot of, I mean, so, so I mean, some of the, is, I suppose, issues that I found were, it's very hard, things that I found very hard were obviously trying to suggest in a situation, in a community, that, the new school and the new community centre that was being offered by like a councillor or a housing association might not be a good thing, right? And it might not be a good thing because that community were good, you know, own it. Um, or if they were going to own it and were going to manage it, they were probably going to be exploited. <laughs> Like in a way, you know, in some form or another, yeah. um, you know, there'd be people would be working for free and they would have something that is called an asset, but might actually be a burden, you know, that, you know, that there may be what, and, and that actually, you know, this new school that is being promised or this new community center that's being promised is just replacing what used to be a separate library, a separate kindergarten, a separate community center, a separate theater, yeah. three primary schools, you know, like, it's like, well, all right, you're getting off of this new thing, but that new thing is replacing like six things that you used to have. Yeah. And maybe should kind of question like what, what this is really, you know, like, but, but again, it's like as soon as, but the, but the narrative of course, isn't, we're demolishing all your assets and squeezing them into one yeah. thing that's going to try and do the job of all those things and we'll probably do it in a bad way because actually it's quite hard to, you know, make something so multi-purpose and yeah. not, you know, and and, and um, 
it's, it's hard to compete. Yeah, that isn't the narrative. You know, the narrative is we're spending twelve million pounds on a new school and community centre, and obviously, yeah. to people that have seen all this other stuff get run down or closed down, or you know, have, have felt disenfranchised and marginalised, then people who come bearing gifts, it it, it, it can all looks pretty good, you know. So. Yeah. So, so, so you do. You end up in this situation where, um, e- even a lot of the the new stuff that gets offered to a community, or even the opportunity to create new stuff in a community, especially at a larger scale, multi-million pound scale, isn't really new. No, like it's 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 replacing something that has deemed to have failed. But then when you look at why that thing has failed, it's because of a lack of maintenance, investment, care, <clears throat> you know, and, 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 and have you fixed that? Like that? Because actually the issue here is not the need for a new building. The issue here is that the previous buildings and the previous activity and the previous culture and the previous social events weren't looked after. Yeah. No, they weren't supported. They weren't funded. They weren't. So, what has that been? You know, is, is that stru- you know kind of structural deficiency been addressed? Because if that hasn't been addressed, and like modes of behaviour at an individual level or an institutional level or organisational level haven't been addressed, then you can keep building whatever the fuck you want. But it's still, and it can look as beautiful as you want. But if it's actually being placed in a culture that actually doesn't or won't care for it invest in it support it mm-hmm. then we but then we're back at that 20 year cycle of knocking stuff down and rebuilding it you know like there's new, new community centers been getting built in glasgow over the last 10 years all over the place but but then you know you look at the history of that stuff you think well it's not like there was never a, you know, it's, it's yeah, very rare yeah. you find a place that didn't, hasn't actually at some point had a community centre or, or had some kind of art centre or had some kind of hall or had some kind of amenity. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so I, so what's, I mean, one of the things that, I, thinking about that, the, the example of the school, the community centre is just as good, I suppose. Um, yeah, where you get this consolidation of a huge number of functions into a single unit and then they, you know, it doesn't work because you... The reason why there's three schools, two theatres, um, you know, a WI centre and all of that is, is that's because that's how many buildings you need to achieve the social good, like the social yeah. critical social capacity. So you, you get rid of three schools, you've get, you got rid of three school gates and three got you know, for, for say stay at home mums, for example, or parents, yeah. bring, the school gates are a critical space. You, you remove that. And, all of and you remove all these routes between places, you yeah. know, like, and, and it's like, that's the kind of thing where all of a sudden, like, if, if all you have to do during a day as a, as a parent, for example, is to kind of get out, you know, what, take your child out of your, your flat, your house, get in a lift, get in a stairwell, go outside, go to a school, come home maybe stop by a small local shop. You know, like if that that's actually your kind of experience of a lot of the environment within which you, you inhabit. Yeah. 
that, that there isn't a kind of, and, and I don't mean like, it's not necessarily about filling places with kind of consumerist delight, you know, or anything like that, but it's still, you're, you're not engaged by lots of different activity or you're not kind of, or your choice, <clears throat> you, you know, your choices in terms of how to behave or how to engage with other people or how to be social or how to consume yeah. or whatever, you know, if all of that stuff is limited <clears throat> to very, very, very narrow experiences then i think that that is so this is antisocial and quite dehumanizing you know basically so this is where your kind of idea of the smaller scale thing gains its um, specific validity in that it kind of transforms the transforms the urban experience into something that enables social engagement is that what it's doing is it specifically orientated or is it also to create objects that are like art pieces in and of themselves beautiful and simply valuable because that because of that so uh, well, is, is, i is, think originally originally it was when i was doing when i started doing or thinking about this stuff when i was doing the masters in urban design like the the, the idea of making small scale things was very much about um like meeting some kind of immediate need <clears throat> through a kind of um, ethnographic and empathic experience of a place um, and was, you know, and there was a desire then that those things are beautiful in some way. Um, and there was then also a desire that people local to a situation could participate in that in some way. And originally, I suppose part of that participation was also naively drawn from this idea that people who get involved in stuff won't ruin it, blah, blah, blah. You know, which I've come to think is like really misguided and actually very patronizing and, um, you know, quite, quite often. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's like trying it, to... Yeah, because isn't that one of the kind of, isn't that one of the uh, the, the things that hangs at the centre of participation? If, if if people are involved in its making or design, then it creates look a sense of, owner, a sense of yeah, ownership yeah. and therefore they... And, 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 that, and that goes back to, again, actually pointing the finger at these people and saying, you, you are the, you're the reason why this place is a mess is because yeah. it's your... You know, it's not the fact that, you know, we took away all your jobs and your support and amenity <laughs> you know, and dumped you on the edge of the city with, with like, you know, one shit bus every hour and then let gangsters run your neighbourhoods for 30 years. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not that. That's the problem. It's, you know, the fact that you're like, and you're, you're naughty. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if you get involved in this, you'll be less naughty. You know, you'll, you'll be less likely to be naughty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you get to paint your front door. You're yeah, not you know, naughty. You won't need yeah. police. <laughs> yeah, you know, So, and 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 part of, part of the realization that that was bullshit was also because I know that the stuff that I am probably the least careful with is my own stuff. <laughs> like actually, yeah. you know, like actually, you know, the, the more I have a sense of ownership over something, the more I feel it's my right to fuck it up. You know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I drive i drive higher cars much more carefully than i drive my own car but yeah exactly you know actually spend look look after other people's stuff far more than yeah, yeah, my yeah. own so so the whole mentality around that i kind of started to realize was kind of rubbish but that there was still 
and that the value in people participating in the making was more, again, as a tool for starting conversations or building some skills or Mm -hmm. giving people an outlet, you know, because in a lot of neighborhoods, people didn't have stuff to do, you know, or or felt that they didn't have stuff to do, or there wasn't a variety of things to do, you know, that the stuff, especially adults, you know, because most of the time people would say, oh, the problem here is there's not enough stuff for the kids. And then what I started to learn is that actually there's quite a lot of stuff for the kids, but there was very little for the adults. And actually the frustrations of place were always articulated by adults through the lens of children quite often, you know, unless it was really like old people in, in, in which they, they were just, you know, uh, frustrated and pissed off with the kids. <laughs> like not, uh, <laughs> whereas, you know, like kind of middle-aged, you know, or adults from mid twenties to forties and that, 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 that they always articulated the, the, the issues of place through the lens of children or young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and didn't you didn't speak actually a lot about their own kind of needs, but, but and 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 it, but it was clear that they did you know actually the needs for the adult population actually were probably more latent than than for for young people. Mm. Um. So so yeah, being getting involved in making something, um, I think you know there's a value in that that is actually not legitimized through the idea that you'll have a sense of ownership over something and then you'll look after it it's more that actually it's kind of healthy and it's good and you can have conversations in a much more collaborative and natural way when you're making something with someone than if you're stuck with a clipboard or you're trying to play some consultation game on a table you know it's like actually the, the, the that situation is is more real in some way you know it's or less abstract than mm. than some of the kind of ways in which um community consulted so so that kind of so so the small scale stuff and the making of the small scale stuff um allowed that type of engagement to happen on on a kind of in a way that felt more meaningful less abstract it potentially originally was about just trying to like see if we could do something positive um that, that didn't require a lot of money but would then um show that action was possible and then following that i suppose when i became more and more aware of you know this i the, the, you know, the, the big stuff tended to fail anyway on uh, over a 20 25 year cycle yeah whether it was like a new community center or whether it was new housing or whether you like, or whatever it was that, that actually it seemed like the master plan was something that actually had to be redone every 25 years. I then started thinking, well, how do you know what the right thing to do is? And that's when for me, like the, the, this act of doing small things and making things started to become quite often about, prototyping at a small scale so it, it, it kind of what on the one hand it could be about what can we do quickly and cheaply and affordably to try and um make something better in some way or what can we make or do or enact that tests 
a bigger future scenario, you know, like actually starts to go like, well, actually, would that be a good idea? <clears throat> would it work? Would people be interested in it? You know, and so then the idea that actually, if, you know, like putting on a, like building the most basic infrastructure to have an outdoor film screening or providing an environment for people to come and test activity in you know so then also it started to become maybe less about the making of small scale permanent physical things and more about what is it you need to make to allow an activity to happen you know so if people are kind of saying oh it'd be good to get together once a week and put on a gig then you're like all right well what do we need for that you know do, do we need a stage do we need some seats do we need a room do we not need a room like what, what's the kind of most basic infrastructure that we can create and design and provide to allow these people to do that thing and then to see if that thing becomes a bigger thing and a bigger thing and a bigger thing. And as it becomes a bigger thing, then that is now telling you what you need. You know, like it's, it, you're, you're not saying, right, we're going to now, we're going to build a, a six million pound theatre. And until we build a six million pound community theatre, no one can do any theater you know, or music you know, you're kind of what, what you're saying is oh some people here maybe already do this thing in this way and would like to do more of it with more people and what's that next level up from doing it in your house or doing it in, in in this way or just doing it with five people and then what what's that next level of infrastructure that allows that next level of activity to to be tested um and then if it doesn't work then there's not a whole lot lost and if it does work, then its momentum will mean that the kind of larger scale architecture will become an inevitability anyway. You know, like that will emerge because it will quite simply be needed, you know. Yeah. Uh, and you'll know it's needed because... Um, well, because the, because the thing itself operates as a kind of register for for needs and values of both, I suppose, of the people there, but of also the place in a holistic sense in the sense of it as a geographical space as an environmental space as an economic space as a kind of um yeah and, and it's like that and also that kind of when, when you also then put you know so for me then it also the conversation became less about just communities having a sense of ownership over a physical thing you know which was probably where the, you know the 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 discourse or the conversation about this work maybe started when I started doing it about 15 years ago, you know, it was like you get people to participate in something because it will either legitimize a development process or it will inform a development process, or it will give people a sense of ownership over something. And then you start to think, well, the one thing that's better than a sense of ownership over something is like actually owning something, <laughs> you know, like, like that's better than, you know, you know, and um, and then you realise that maybe actually, like ownership over just a physical thing. I don't know, like a a, a multi-purpose urban games park or a community centre or whatever, is maybe also not as good as owning the process of that thing. You like actually owning the process of change, essentially. You know, like, and then you also start to realise that actually. It, trying to own the process of kind of program and activity like like actually all of these things 
need to be considered simultaneously. You know, it's like the physical spatial thing, the activity thing, and then the actual process of the delivery of those things, you know, and, and, and like the more in which um, that more, the more for me anyway, that the ideal situation is that a, a local situation of people and place is able to have ownership over those three things, mm-hmm. but with the support of expertise, you know, as and when it's required, you know, like, okay, maybe we can, or maybe we cannot write plays right? yeah. <laughs> like, as a local, but, maybe, but we, but we like, theater we like before you know and, and so we have the capacity now to go and procure that or commission that or whatever but it but it's not being commissioned by others and imposed on us we're kind of saying like let's try this let's try that let's do this let's bring them you know so so the you know the other kind of value in um like doing these small scale things and again increasingly those small scale things were not actually um about the physical thing or the object or the, the spatial thing or the designed thing by myself but we're more about the the kind of swing dance event on a sunday or the barbecue thing or the mm-hmm. cinema thing or the outdoor mud the mud kitchen thing or like like it, it was actually um that people all of a sudden didn't just have ideas but they also had agency over those ideas and agency over and an ability and the support to test those ideas or establish those ideas. Yeah. I mean, I'm, that- I'm, I'm just, um, <clears throat> the word I keep, well, so you talked earlier about this idea of the architect having some sort of become disinvested either through their own will or through the will of others from the architectural design process, becoming kind of a small aspect of a much wider thing. And, and, and this is, I think this is undeniable and it's and it's massively affected the way that architects self conceptualize but that's quite clearly also true from the basis of the community as well that community because what you're describing is essentially natural organic processes of community development and that some for some reason uh, radical um, inequality being part of it but not possibly the whole thing communities themselves have stopped feeling like they can do this, and I don't want to get too fur- too much back into the problematic, so to speak, rather than the way that you approach the solution, which I think is really, really, fa- you know, really fascinating. This idea of, yeah, doing the, the 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 least amount of architecture possible in a way to procure the the most the maximum quantity of programmatic and spatial use and improvement. Um, which I think is a, you know, it's a really elegant, really elegant thing. I, I, I suppose, how, how does this sit? So th- there's two things f- for me that come off the back of this. How does this sit within the wider urban development thing? How does, how does it, how does such a small scale and granular process um, affect meaningful change at scale? Because when we're talking about urban inequality now, we have, uh, you know, as you pointed out about Glasgow, but you could very well say in most cities in the post-industrial world and every city in the global south, the level of the problem is so vast that but for 
incredibly large scale actors working at without you know without any um restraint the problem is i mean on the ground it's people burying their children you know it's 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 really major issues here so how does that small scale process operate at bigger scale does it even want to is that is that the wrong way of thinking about it is that someone else's problem and what we're talking about here is just yeah well i mean i i I always wanted it to exist at a larger scale or inform a larger scale um and you know in i don't know through through my own naivety or whatever desire you know wanted a situation where the organisations that I either worked with or helped establish would become big, powerful yeah. things. I suppose, right? Well, you know, did, I mean, that did and, essentially and, happen. And, in and, some, and some, yeah, some, and some of them have, and some yeah. of them have. But, but like, you know, when I, when I still chat to, you know, when, when I'm chatting to Jeannie about these things these days in beats, like she's still can't even with all they're doing and even though they own like a 13 acre site and they run loads of activity they employ loads of people north ayrshire council will still decide that you know what is needed in this area is a new kind of community thing down by the lockshore um and that the local rugby club should kind of own it and run it, but it should also offer kind of a bit more than just be a rugby. You know, you know, like yeah, yeah. still, yeah. even though like a local authority or big institution could support in a bigger way what these development trusts, you know, it, it, they're still, even with all the success they have, still do not necessarily have a level of influence and you know, it's it still probably feels like what they're doing. They're kind of having to do, still in in spite of, you know, maybe local politics and established democratic institutions and state. So is, you know, is it about enabling a, a, a parallel process? Is that what it becomes? Rather, if if these leviathans, these beasts of you know local authority and and commercial builders and construction firms and so on, uh, social housing. The, if, if they're completely impervious to this kind of human scale development process, is it about creating parallel processes and, and, and to, or, or, or is well, there a reciprocity? Is there a possibility I mean, of reciprocity? I, I don't know, in some cases there is, but I, I, but I think I, I now probably believe that what has emerged is there are parallel processes and that that's not necessarily healthy. Um, And, you know, why should local people who sit within an existing system of organisational democracy have to then go and build their own community centres and run them themselves. Yeah, yeah. taxation like, without representation. I mean, it's yeah, uh, it's, yeah. It's uh, like, what the fuck is that? And and why and, and why should the means of paying for that be working class gambling addiction 
through the national lottery. <laughs> so, you know, like, so what, so, so, you know, currently, you know, the system of community grassroots renewal is to like beg for money and support off big stakeholders and then go and beg the national lottery for money that you spent chasing the dream of winning millions of pounds. Or just um, a tenner. Yeah, or just a tenner, you know. You, you know, it's like, it's the biggest scam ever, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, like, actually, we're going to... I mean, it's so ballsy. Instead, You've got to give them credit. You've got to give them credit. Whoever came yeah, yeah, up with the like, instead, of taxing, instead of taxing rich people fairly yeah. to pay for the essential amenity that would empower those at the lowest levels of society, what we're going to do is we're going to create a competition that those people will pay money to engage in, and then we're going to make those people beg for that money back so that they can have community centres yeah. and stuff. And, 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 and it could be you. Yeah, yeah, you know. It could, and, be, it could be. It probably won't be, but it could be. Yeah. Like, that, like you know, and so that, that's mad, really. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and and that's and, and and you know and then you realize like or I realize you know that you you're now part of this like mad crazy game mm. um because you feel like you have to create this parallel method because if you don't then stuff in isn't going to get better um and 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 yeah like increasingly you think well this is all really odd it's really weird um I, and it's like even in like Preston at the model uh, Preston at the moment there's a thing called the Preston model that is being talked about which is you know Preston's labor administration have started to create a more locally based procurement model and they're also working to establish um you know collective like workers cooperatives and collectives and trying to foster that and I've, I've kind of been talking to the leader of the Preston City Council a bit more about these things, Matthew Brown, who's a dead good guy. But again, this conversation that emerges is that, well, like, why is a city council actually now having to create parallel systems in order for the right thing to happen? You know, like, because why can't we have a granular democracy? Like, why can't we have... Um, responsibility and representation at the level of the cul-de-sac or the street or, you know, that's all tied into um, systems of, you know, wealth redistribution or economy or whatever, you know, whatever it is that's all tied into ways in which people can earn money, make money, invest money or whatever, you know. So it feels like we've created again, a kind of third sector competition culture that again breeds levels of paranoia and nastiness within third sector organizations, whether it's like arts organizations, community organizations or whatever, that are kind of living in a perpetual state of fear. You know, like that, that, that's what seems to emerge is like you, you end up being fearful of your funding. You're fearful of your support, you're fearful of your reputation. And so fragility is like 
just inherent at every point within this parallel third sector mode of yeah. change. And I probably are coming to, you know, like a point that I don't think that's acceptable. Um, yeah. And I don't know necessarily like, you know, what, it's almost like the answer to that, you know, like the perfect situation is almost like so hard to imagine could ever be possible, you know, like ever be possible that you feel like an idiot for even like thinking that we well, might have this, you know, we might have we might have a system of democracy that actually provides and supports through the existing modes of it. You know, like we have councils, we have elected representatives, we have taxation, we have budget, you know, like that all of that stuff that actually kind of already exists in some form could and should be the thing that is doing all this stuff that I've been involved in. You know, and and it, and and, and and then you actually you think about 40, 50 years, and that is what happened. Yeah. And actually, the architects who were designing schools and magistrates' courts um, and police stations worked for the council. Yeah. And the people who spoke to communities about what they needed were local representatives and people who worked for the council. You know, and, and there, there wasn't like a divestment of expertise and you know like like we, we, we kind of privatized everything well it's based around this idea that competition breeds innovation and that you know is true to a certain extent but i think probably less true in arts organizations and certainly so 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 you end up with this very very high turnover of kind of of, of organizations who are as you say you know fighting for a bit of national lottery money or a bit of um, local authority funding. I mean, we've had this grotesqueness recently, haven't we, of this levelling up fund where they've been getting local authority, local regions to fight for some money to stop things going to shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it's like, like and, it, and, it, and more to the point, they get them to fight for chicken feed. I mean, it is staggeringly small sums of money. Yeah, I mean, I had had this discussion recently based around this like Preston model thing where you know it's like the Preston model is based on concepts of community wealth building um and then the discussion then about participatory budget um involved you know so and again what that comes down to is basically creating groups at a local level that then decide how money is spent within mm -hmm. that area um, or inform how money is spent in that area. And, and there's, there's potential for that that could be quite good. But what again, what I tend to see is that that kind of stuff ends up being turned into some kind of X Factor style, yeah, yeah. you know, like we need it most thing. <laughs> you know, And so again, you've got this situation that is not based on like, a you know, a kind of empirical and quantitative or experiential identification of that needs sorting out right now. So spend the fucking money on it, you know. Yeah. Or there's a strategy, you know, that is like right, okay, well we start here, start there, we do a bit there. It's like right, who needs it the most? Put your hands up and dance for it, you know. Yeah. And that's um, again, I, I kind of don't 
necessarily, you know, it's like, where does the expertise sit into those conversations? Where's the nuance? Where's the, you know, the, the knowledge that informs people's ability to vote or make that decision or, or whatever, you know, when you've just got organisations competing, saying we need it the most, and then local people, like, voting, you know. Um, so I, th I think even some of, some of that kind of stuff, again, is not being... You know, I think it's still a way off actually being um, as useful or meaningful as it as it could be. Mm. Um, and I think that's the big tension in a lot of this stuff is like, where where does the space exist for expertise? You know, like what form does that expertise take? Who commissions that? Who procures it? Who listens to it? Who ignores it? Who you know and um, and and then who decides? Yeah, you know, like, like all, all of these things seem to be the kind of point, you know, or, or some of the points of tension within this kind of kind of work. And obviously, expertise at a political level has been demonised a lot at a national level. You know, especially architects, we've let ourselves basically be described by politicians as just a kind of extravagant flamboyant money wasting space wasting kind of you know that, that need all these other people around us to control you know our whatever egos ambitions and, and you know like obviously 50 percent of that's probably true yeah. <laughs> but, but but again but again like that, that's um but it, but it, but it, but it, however that situation has emerged, where people can kind of describe us in that way, and people believe it, you know, it's something that we need to like look as a profession. You know, is like why, why, why are we viewed in that way, and why are we viewed in that way by secretaries of state and prime ministers, and you know, like why, when people at the very very top of the political hierarchy want advice and want to be informed about the built environment that they tend to speak to architects after they've spoken to philosophers, cost consultants. Um, Jamie Oliver. <laughs> yeah, 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 celebrity chef. I don't, yeah, you know, like, what, how, how, how come we're not, like, first in the queue when, when, when they want to kind of be informed on how to make the built environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I just think it would be quite interesting to talk about how we teach this, because yeah. you're obviously a teacher, and I'm a teacher. And how do we move away within the architectural, so architectural practice, architectural education tends to be orientated around um, objects and heroes and heroes are nice and objects are nice so it's kind of seductive and 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 uh and uh it keeps on keeping on doesn't it yeah. uh, as as a as an educational model and maybe that's fine maybe it's important that we know about louis khan and gunnar asplund and alvaro and and people like that but also 
obviously, if architects are going to get out of the doldrums, out of the margins, peculiarly enough, and get involved in the margins, um, so stop just operating for, for, as Al Parvin says, you know, for, for the 1%, a business model that's orientated towards the 1%. I mean, literally affordable only by a very small fraction of the population. Then, then how do we teach this? What does this? What does teaching this look like? And is it something that we should teach? Or I suppose, you know, what do you think? Well, yeah. That? Well, I mean, one of the um, interesting things, like when when I took this job as a course leader, and I was kind of looking at, I suppose, you know, all the course documentation that already existed for for the course that I, I, I'm now involved in. And when I was kind of looking into also the kind of language of UCLan in terms of its own mission and, and stuff, you, you started kind of, yeah, realize there's an idea about how we, you know, support, how we, how we create, you know, like graduates who are ready for industry, who <clears throat> are going to support local practice um, and all of this. And then there's a big part of you that says, like, I don't want any of my students working in the vast majority <laughs> of practices yeah. in the northwest of England. Um, or there's a big part of me that is like, well, the industry's pretty fucked. Like, you know, you know, like we we, we need we need to create students who are gonna counter that, you know, or are going to progressively inform it in some way and are not going to get trapped in this model that you just described that is geared towards just facilitating um, the continued um, acquisition of wealth by, you know, the 1% or whoever. Uh, so, so then you're like, okay, but I also really want to make sure my students get a job. <laughs> you like, also yeah, yeah. get a job. You know, like, it's, it's so, so you're caught in, it, you see, so you're then caught between, like, yeah, how do you teach it? You know, because I want to make sure, on the one hand, that as many of my students, especially in Preston, at an architecture school in Preston that is not, doesn't have a culture of entitlement, whose students do come from a, a more diverse range of backgrounds, whose expectations of themselves are different than the expectations of a lot of other students in architecture schools who have, you know, always been successful and got good grades and expect to do well and probably will do well. You know, it's a different situation. I don't want to kind of, yeah, impose some kind of... Um, supposedly radical pedagogy uh, or whatever bullshit, you know, it gets described as, you know, by other people who think they're imposing radical pedagogies in our yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, You know, like, um, and then they can't even get a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, they, you know, they, they, they end up being so disenfranchised with what is out there, you know. Yeah, yeah. And 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 for a lot of my students, probably their dream is at the end of it, they just get a job. You know, like actually, this desire to change the world or change the nature of the profession is my desire first, and not always theirs. Now that's different in other architecture schools. It's different in other parts of the UK. It's different in other situations, like whatever. Where in other situations, those students coming in are saying to their tutors, 
why aren't you teaching me how to change the world? Like, why aren't you teaching me how to like be more sustainable or more equitable or more accessible or whatever? Um, whereas it's, it's, it's <clears throat> more mixed, you know, in terms of like, I think our own students mm-hmm. um, and that those desires are those things. Yeah. Kind of emerge through hearing different voices and having conversations um and my I suppose one of the first things for me was probably in terms of the briefs and the projects that I had some level of agency over was just starting to like change the language of some of them um away from being very heavy-handedly you know referential in terms of theory and trying to make the point of what was being taught and what we were doing quite understandable, you know, like actually not wrapping, not wrapping up actually what is, you know, it's like architecture actually is, is not, is only complex because we've built a complex culture around it to justify, you know, um, having fun with it (laughs) (laughs) to justify doing some mad shit and and you know you know it's but it's not it doesn't actually have to be maybe as hard as we make it and and then but then in not making it as hard as we make it also doesn't mean that it's not clever or it's not aspirational or it's not beautiful or delightful Mm -hmm. or joyful or complex in other ways um so i think there's something about yeah the the language of architecture that it has kind of adopted over the last 50, 60 years that is actually quite inaccessible and disenfranchising. Yeah. Um, there is then, I think, the types of projects that students get asked to do as well. You know, so like, I, I don't know why I want, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, it's like giving my students a kind of big theatre brief or an, art gallery brief or something that actually has you know like what I wanted to do was create briefs that had a thesis behind them that was representative of the people and the place within which that was suggested you know so kind of having a cool corner site in a city and saying right we're going to stick a gallery on it without being able to communicate to the students a narrative of why there should be a gallery on it for me was, 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 was is is not useful you know so like so with every brief that i'm setting i want to be able to say this is the rationale for creating a piece of architecture either here or in this town or in this place or if i'm saying to students go and find a site then each project has an agenda that can be um referenced back to an analysis of the potential needs of that place <clears throat> and its and its people and sometimes that thesis is kind of provided by myself. In other cases, obviously, there is exercises done that allow that thesis to emerge through exploration that the students do. You know, so, you know, there's different ways in which we analyse Blackpool, for example, and the, and the students quite quickly realise that there's some stuff going on there that's, you know, odd or unfair or amazing or cool like, like, like there's, there's a there's a condition there that is blackpool 
and the way in which a building fits into that condition is potentially going to have an impact in a whole whole variety of ways and that you can kind of start to um yeah de- develop and deliver projects in such a way that might suggest a way of changing that condition in in quite a progressive way you know um so so that's part you know for me and I, i've never been really interested in kind of proper proper live project briefs where the students have a real client um because i feel like that's what you're doing you know like like i kind of feel like that's what your year outs are meant to introduce you to mm-hmm. and also when that when i have been involved in those kind of projects it tends to exploit the student in an onsite you know you basically have someone who's getting students to design something for them for free and then at the end of that, no one really kind of gets what they really, really want quite often. Um, but what I am interested in is like presenting students with very, very real situations and analysing those situations and speaking to the people who live and work and engage and act in those situations. Um, but then, yeah, the brief itself is maybe still something that is quite speculative, you know, in its form. It's, it's, it's not, doesn't have to be real for it to kind of teach a way of engaging in the needs of the real world, basically. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's part, part of it. But I also think that, you know, you can't, but, but yeah, I think the students should know about Louis Kahn and all those people who it's kind of good to know about, I suppose. But I think, there's other voices need to start coming into that as well. You know, I mean, obviously I have colleagues and, 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 you know, aware of other people in architectural education who keep referring to the canon. Um, I always thought a canon was like a big loud thing that shot at boats. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> you got you to know the language. Yeah, exactly. And this is it. You know, you've got to know the language, you know, and, yeah. and then, you know, you, we've got a, whatever, diversify that canon um a bit and we've got a well a lot um and you know that's starting to happen and emerge but i think you know there's obviously at the moment we're in a point of transition within architecture architecture education and society at large you know where you know a white middle class voice is having a you know give up move aside um become less dominant in those conversations and you know right rightly rightly so i mean i kind of don't necessarily have a, an issue with that kind of transition of diversity and accessibility at all um but that i think at the moment means that there's a kind of situation of tension and conflict within architectural education where there's, still, there's some stuff that we still don't want to let go of because it is kind of cool you know these you know the, the, there's all these like you know kind of weird bullying despot, despotic odd dysfunctional male white architects who did do <laughs> did do a lot of kind of interesting stuff um pretty cool shapes yeah you know and and you know why not yeah still learn about that but the way we contextualize that can change. You know, it's like you don't you don't have to like just say, 
we don't need any of that anymore to recontextualize how you speak about it or how you present it or how you teach it or, or whatever, you know, and I, even though my own experience or interest has been in this kind of slightly more socially active or community-based small scale architecture, I've also, I've kind of, I realized in my own job early on that trying to impose that, you know, at like every level on every project, in every brief, in every part of an architectural education wasn't actually necessarily that useful, you know. Um, and that, you know, you, you, you'd still need to have a plurality of voices and interests competing within an educational system, you know, and getting listened to within an educational system and creating a situation where kind of discussion and arguments and different points of view happen. Um, and there isn't some singular ideology imposed on the way everything gets taught. Uh, I, I kind of don't think that's healthy, to be honest. Fantastic. I think we're going to leave it there, but um, uh, that's covered a lot of ground. I think it's just very interesting that the, yeah, that your own education, Strathclyde seems to have had this impact. And certainly Glasgow has that impact on people, doesn't it? Of, of orientating or of enabling, I think. This kind yeah, of I mean, smaller scale, more fragmentary or more, is it more, more, more a franchised kind of? Well, I think, I, think, I mean, Strathclyde, I don't, I don't know if I kind of realised it at the time that it was unique. And I also think that at the time I was at Strathclyde, there were, there'd been a history of kind of community-based and activism-based architecture and design at Strathclyde over a number of years. Yeah. But I think that when I was there, and I didn't maybe realise until afterwards it was happening, was that the kind of the modernists um, within the staff were pushing back against that, actually, and try, like kind of gaining a bit more territory back, you know, and all of a sudden, I remember before we entered into like fourth year, for example, that fourth year had previously been run as a kind of small scale unit system where there was like a community design unit and there was another thing, you know, and then it became a kind of flat thing when we came into it, you know, and then the advanced architectural design masters at Strathclyde before we went into fifth year had, had been, you know, run by Jonathan Charlie, who um, is, you know, a big socialist and it had a certain kind of openness to it that was quite experimental, that didn't require buildings to be designed necessarily, that, you know, and there was a lot of kind of, yeah, activism um, and discussion around these themes. Um, and then that kind of, that final year became something else when we entered it, which was another reason why I went into the urban design strand, because I still felt, you know, th th there was a place there to kind of ask some of these broader questions. And so, yeah, it, it, and, but but it was there was definitely a culture of participation engagement looking at architecture within these situations and then glasgow obviously you know at late 90s early noughties was really 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 
looking hard at how to renew itself, you know. Yeah. And even though, you know, I have a certain amount of antipathy to this, you know, like large scale master planning stuff and things like that, there's still no doubt that, you know, most of the time the intentions, I think, in the early noughties were, were, were good. You know, like the intentions were, even if the application wasn't necessarily always right. But again, that was the same in the 60s as well. You know, it was like, you know, no, no one designed and built tower blocks actually to trap poor people. <laughs> like in, Are you sure? On the outskirts of town. Like, like, like the, 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 all of this stuff was built actually, usually, or conceived, if not built, with the best of intentions. You know, it, it was to take people from you know, very, very unhealthy, toxic in a city slum environments and, yeah. and put them in green space and take them away from, you know, you know, so, um, so yeah, I, I, I think that you, you, Strathclyde, you were kind of surrounded by a lot of good intentions at times. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, yeah, probably informed me more than I realised at the time it was informing me. And then you, you had this, you were in a city that was that made all of this stuff very visible, you know, like very kind of latent. Um, and for me, anyway, that was kind of quite hard to ignore, I suppose. Yeah, that's a nice point to look finish on. Thanks ever so much. Um, yeah. I'm going to stop recording. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting conversation, and it goes on and on. Uh, I'm interested to see how it keeps yeah whether we get anywhere with it or whether this is just another turn of the same circle as you say it's in the 60s it was in the 70s it was probably a little bit in the 80s by some shady people happened again in the 90s and now we're back again thinking about how to engage communities but hopefully something will happen anyway thanks ever so much lee okie dokie thanks for listening thanks of course to lee for his time and insights and inspiration, please look him up on social media and at UCLan. There's links to that in the podcast description. And please like, share, follow Airs for Architecture. And see you next week. Cheers.